Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Today, we're talking with one of the hardest working men in Hollywood, Jason Bateman. He's an actor, a director, a producer. He's a Golden Globe winner for his performance as Michael Bluth in Arrested Development and a Screen Actors Guild Award winner for his work playing Marty Bird in Ozark. Oh, and he's also a four-time Emmy nominee. Whether on the big screen or the small screen, in a comedy or a drama, behind or in front of the camera, Bateman's all-or-nothing attitude drives him to deliver time and time again. It's all here. What fans can expect from the third season of Ozark, the sense of responsibility he brings to the work that he does, and his obsessive love of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Jason, I've always wanted to ask you about your life as a kid actor. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing you in Little House on the Prairie. Mm -hmm. I remember that character. (laughs) And then when I met you in real life, I was like, oh, yeah, my God. And all the stuff that you did, all the sitcoms and movie of the weeks and stuff like that. Did you want to do it? Did you feel forced into it? No, my dad was a writer, director, producer um, uh, in the freelance kind of world. Never any sort of like, you know, quote, huge success, but was always sort of like working in post-production facilities and things like that. And his passion was this. And so uh, at the time when more traditional fathers and sons would go to the park to throw a ball, he would take me to, like, The New Art, which is this independent film or sort of foreign film place for people who don't know here in L.A. Um, And so he'd show me, you know, films that were, you know, pretty boring to a kid, you know, subtitles and all that stuff. But he he just saturated me with it, and I finally sort of started to see some of the more complicated stuff because he would help me identify what is good, what is bad, why is this complicated, and how could it be simpler, but maybe that's not so good. And So it's kind of like this uh, accelerated, annoyingly specific class that he was putting me through. Um, but ultimately, it ended up yielding a, a, a big passion for me in it because it was what my dad loved, just like a dad who's throwing the ball with you, like you want to learn how to throw the ball or hit the ball really well because... So when I was 10, I went to an audition with a friend of mine, uh, or a friend of my dad's, this adult that lived across the street. Um, he was reading for the part of the father. They were reading for the part of the son the same day, and he kind of snuck me in there. He said, you know, make it look like you know what you're doing, and I ended up getting this part. So I thought I was actually could do this thing that my dad was saying, you know, is so interesting. And so that led to uh, like a commercial agent and uh, I did a handful of commercials and then started reading for episodic stuff and then a couple of those and then start reading for pilots and I got um, one of those and off I went into Little House and all the sitcoms that followed. 
And your sister, of course, Justine, mm -hmm. was on Family Ties and is basically responsible for an entire generation of girls named Mallory. Yeah, that's true. So what was that like in at home with the two of you working? It's actually the best hours for an actor. Um, they're long hours for the writers, but for an actor, it's like the greatest job in the world because you come in at about 9 in the morning and you're done by like 3.30 and an hour of that is lunch. Uh, it's it's really cushy. It's it's really fun. But she she was doing some modeling in New York as a, I think she started when she was 15 or something like that. And to pay for hotel rooms, she started to do some commercials because she was seeing like how much, you know, commercials were paying me. I was doing, you know, a bunch of them. And, um, and she did only two commercials and then got an audition for Family Ties. So that was that. Um, and it was it was nice that the two of us had each other to talk about how odd this this atypical childhood was, you know, not going to school, doing schoolwork on the set three hours a day, um, no real connection to our friends at school except for starting in March, right? So like March to June, we'd the television season would be over and we'd go back into school and then there was always that kind of uncomfortable, um, you know, transition and, you know, there was like jealousy, at least I had, you know, with or picking on and all that stuff. Is there anybody from that period in your life that is still in your life today that isn't a relative? No. Um, and in fact, all of my high school friends really have, have sort of, we've kind of drifted for no other reason than, you know, I just fell in love with uh, my, my wife, uh, Amanda, and just kind of went all in on that at, 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 the, at the expense of hanging out with all of my buddies, which really entailed doing a lot of things that are not really conducive to, you know, um, having a full-time job and starting a family and being a good husband and all of that mm -hmm. stuff. And not that they were all, you know, criminals uh, by any <laughs> stretch, but... Uh, I'm sort of like an all or nothing kind of guy. I don't really like a lot of gray. So it was, a, you know, that was a big sort of partying period for me. And then once Arrested Development and Amanda came along um, and sobriety, uh, it was sort of like, well, let's kind of just go into adulthood full steam and, and kind of point my obsessiveness into that. Mm -hmm. Was it very clear for you as at that time that to be sober was what you're going to have to do to achieve the, all the things you wanted? I don't think it was a, like a binary choice. I, I, I mean, I'm sure maybe some people would disagree with me, but I didn't feel like my partying was, um, you know, super self-destructive. I always partied out of celebration as opposed to kind of filling a hole and, and masking some sort of depression and just trying to, you know, trying to cope with all the sadness I was feeling. It was really the opposite. It was more of a sort of a hedonistic kind of drive, you know. It was like, I'm so having such a good time. Let's go to 11, you know, instead of, you know, just a 10. I don't think I would be enjoying the kind of opportunities I have today if I had continued dabbling, but it just meant I got an earlier start on kind of the momentum I'm still mm -hmm. trying to maintain. Mm -hmm. How did you fall in love with the Dodgers? Really what did it for me was the Ken Burns baseball documentary. So I, I'm a big documentary fan, and so it was sort of, it was a, it was a, a film fan draw is what, what really kind of started. It just knocked me out, and it 
got me, in a nutshell, to see baseball as a game and not a sport. And and all the things that kind of go along with that, the strategy, the pacing, the the intellectual side of it, the history of it, the pedigree of it, all of these things that are a little bit more game than sport. And I just kind of got romanticized by it. Um, and, you know, like I cry at one point in every one of those tapes. There's there's 10 of them now. I just like the the, the combination of the, the history and the community. And, and I really love that, you know, it starts at seven at night when the, the sun's still out here in the summer. And by the time it's over, it's nighttime. And I've spent three plus hours in a chair with a buddy and you know, talking through any number of subjects because time allows for it. Has Ozark uh, cut into your baseball schedule yeah. at all? Yeah, in a <laughs> pretty significant. Way. Yeah, uh, but that's that's fine. You know, I mean, I used to go to every single yeah. game, but I'm watching every single game. I get up three hours before call time. Um, I'm up at four thirty in the morning for a seven thirty call. I'm up watching the Dodger game and fast forward and going over my, you know, homework for the day. And it's just, it's a good routine. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's talk about Marty Bird. All right. Okay. You are in the middle of season three, right? Yeah. Oh, so season two delivered, I would, will say. Yeah. I uh, was shocked by some aspects of uh, what happened uh, in the la basically the finale kind right. of was jaw dropping for me. I was like, "Wow!" Yeah, but uh, it's not. I mean, I don't know. I, I I hear from people who really enjoy the show or kind of kind of hate enjoy it because it's it's stressful. But I hear that that stress thing or like, "Oh, like I can't. It's too nerve wracking." And I mean, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I see enough to know that like there's a level of violence and dread and anxiety that exists in many, many shows uh, that far exceeds what we do, I, 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 I think. So, well, the anxiety is, it's not so much the it's, it's just, you are so wrapped up in it. I think the difference between, you know, maybe other shows or this show in particular, but for me, I can only speak for myself is when I'm watching it, I'm putting myself in that in those okay, characters. Good. So yeah, I see yeah. it. I'm like, oh, my God. He didn't just do that. Oh, look at now she's Wendy's really coming on. You know, I really enjoy right. the dynamics of the characters. And you did have a high body count. <laughs> you know, it was a little count. Game of Thrones there in terms yeah. of, like, how many people are going to get killed. But it all made sense. And I don't have so much anxiety about, oh, no, it's more about the the – the challenges that the characters themselves are going through. I think for me, that's that's what it is. But yeah, well, that's a good, it's a good testament to Chris Mundy, our head writer, and, and his staff, you know, that they are able to craft whatever violence or, you know, criminal challenge through the experience of these characters that are supposed to be recognizable, right? They're, they're supposed to be kind of human and people that aren't, not too dissimilar to us. Um, and that's, I would imagine, a very hard thing to do, that you have to write people that are so real yet raw, yet um, intelligent but not so intelligent that they would make smart decisions. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that kind of weave that they managed to do that I think is is that path to anxiety because... 
uh, we can't see us in them. This could have happened to you or me had we decided to kind of round a corner, um, you know, 10 years ago and, and pick the easier way just to make a little a little grab on some money. But one thing led to another and some more foolish kind of doubling down and things get exponentially bad. And yeah, they they're, they do a great job of tracking that. So good. I'm, I'm glad that that's that's it because that's that's what i kind of like to do as an actor too and as a director is kind of create a uh, a situation that is there is no acting or there is no directing that there is just something that is you're not sure what it is but it nothing's distracting me as a viewer i'm not watching acting i'm not watching directing i'm things are being created in a way that feels um uh, uncomfortably tangible, that mm -hmm. it's unsettling how kind of real and people aren't pressing or the camera moves aren't too showy or when there's violence, it happens kind of in the left corner of the frame and it's out of focus. Like that's kind of how you would see a body falling out of a building. Like you, you know, you're not watching it come down. You, it, you just hear it and you think you saw a flash and you turn and the body's already on the ground. So. I, I just, full disclosure, I rewatched that about five times. Yeah. <laughs> and Ford, my youngest, was in the room. And uh -huh. so all he said, Mommy, Ozark, remember when the body fell? <laughs> You're going to lose like, your mom card. Yeah. I just basically lost my parenting card mm -hmm. because at 20 seconds, I was like, oh my, I was obsessed with that scene about you walking and the body and the right. noise and the leg and the shoe falling off. I was just like, I was so glad the way that turned out because I oh, I had always perfect. when I read it it was the, it sneaks up on you in your read and so I thought well what's the what's the visual component of that surprise how do we make that kind of coming out of left field so what what are the what are the two minutes leading up to that you know what do they look like and sound like where you're not preconditioning the audience for that uh, again where does it fall in the frame what does it sound like. Um, it should probably be in, in one continuous take. We shouldn't have the camera pointed at the body coming down. It should, or following it. Um, and so I wanted to drop that body from a crane. Um, so I wanted to do it practically. I didn't want to have it, you know, digitally kind of thrown in there. So we had to do this uh, with a cable. We had to put the, the dummy um, on a cable so that there was no wind risk of it blowing into me because I wanted to walk as close to it as possible. And so I said, well, wait a second. We're going to have this thing slide down a wire. Well, not a wire, two wires. So it's a double wire. So there's going to be no rotation on it. Like it would be flailing a little bit. And I really got really granular with the dummy too. I was like, well, listen, let's, we, I don't want a rubber dummy because it's going to bounce. Body wouldn't bounce. And believe me, I know this because I looked at these horrendous pictures from our technical consultant, um, this EMT guy. Uh, so I was like, how do we construct this dummy so that it doesn't bounce? Do we put water, do we, you know, throughout it? Um, and then the answer would be no, because if the water comes out, it's water, it's not blood. I said, so then should we color the water that goes in? It was all of this stuff. So anyway, so we did it three times. Uh, one of the times it landed weird. The other time um, the shoe came off, but the leg bounced a lot. So we had to digitally go in there and eliminate the bounce. And then we had to find the right sound. And so all of these things are like really a fun part of directing because you're kind of, 
you're you're designing what that experience is for the audience because if you clank that moment then it's like oh well that was fake it's got to be a little messy a little oh, it was it's really fun I yeah quite believe it I'm so interested in our audience's obsession with these ethically, morally challenged characters. Mm -hmm. They're basically bad people, but they look like us. Like you said, you couldn't, you know, you could be anybody, so to speak, Marty and Wendy Bird, right? It's like the prototypes of the Tony Sopranos, you know, these right. guys. We root for them, but they're also bad dudes. What do you think it is about this character and the family that, that people— just like gravitate to them or they they I don't know it's relate but they love watching them well I hope that again it, it is the words that the writers put in the character's mouth right they're not they talk like regular people they are doing regular jobs they have a regular looking family they have regular temptations and convenient ethics at times like we kind of all do um, but there is a, an extra step that these people are going that kind of warrants the entertainment of a show, right? Like we, you and I would stop just short of something that's worthy of asking a few million people to stop what they're doing and watch this, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> we live pretty boring yeah. lives, you know, yeah. which means we stay out of jail. Yeah. Uh, but th these guys kind of just go one step further and so I, I do think it's the relatability. I, I think it is a combination of, of, the, of the writing, the, the photography of it. it, it is, there's, a, there's an aesthetic to it that feels, it feels raw. It feels like, you know, to get into the weeds on it all. But, you know, if you oversaturate the color, it feels kind of safe. If you desaturate a little bit, it feels like something might go wrong. If you score it with something that's super melodic, then it's you're not kind of preconditioned to worry about something and you don't get the audience right up to the goal line so that you don't have to make big moves to get them into the end zone of dread, you know? So there's all of these little things you try to calibrate to to make it um, as subtle as possible when you want to move the audience left or right. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about, like, directing for Ozark. What's what's the best part of your day when you know you're you're on deck, and what is the worst part of your day? The best part of the day is um, being in a situation where you can um, gather, organize, and guide uh, a day for a bunch of people that you deeply respect and admire, but are, you know, by, by tradition and definition obligated to follow you, you know, like that is, um, that's a, a position that a lot of crew members and, and cast members are, 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 are uncomfortable with, um, sometimes because of, Leadership that's either ill-equipped, uh, indifferent, um, disrespectful of the process, or, I mean, you know, look, most directors and producers and, and executives are fantastic people, but sometimes you'll get somebody in there that is just not as buttoned up as I feel that you are obligated to be if you raise your hand for a position of leadership, you know? I mean, it's a really privileged place to be when you're dealing with 
a group of people that are incredibly skilled and work incredibly hard and the payment for what they do is is not equal to the degree of difficulty. Um, so I think the least you can do is have done your homework and have a point of view and be in whatever disposition you need to be to be a sincere collaborator and all that stuff. So my my greatest joy of it is um, is is sensing or hearing or or observing a degree of comfort and, and enjoyment that the entire crew and production staff is having while going through a, a very typical 12-hour day. You know, it's, it's hard. It's really hard work. And if you can make that an enjoyable process and still do good work, um, that, I feel, is, a, is the best part of what I've been able to kind of absorb over X number of years. Like, I really feel fortunate that I'm in a position to utilize that which I've learned. I don't know. There, there really isn't a terrible part of it, truly. It really is, for my taste, like the best job in the world. And even when days are tough, they're, they're probably tough because I didn't work three hours last night and another three hours this morning to make sure I was fully buttoned up on this sequence because today was complicated. I only put in a couple hours. And so then I've got a, you know, I can't nap during my half hour lunch or I can't, you know, and it's, so it just gets tiring, you know, sometimes and, you know, mentally exhausting, but what job isn't? And so season three, you're in the middle of that right now, right? We're actually just at the, uh, just at the end of the beginning. I'm directing the first two again, and we've just got uh, a couple of weeks left on that block. Um, we've been going for about a month now. So what can fans of the show, can you give me any little tidbit of what we might? Uh, this year's a musical. I okay. can give you that. Right. That is, uh, that is news. Those okay. are really popular these yeah. days. Oh, because yeah. Oh, and what are you, is it going to be even more popular yeah. when you see Marty singing and dancing? Yeah. You know, I started as a singer. Yeah. Did you know that? It's great. No. Um, episode nine is fully animated. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure that I was going to ask you, what's the tourism like post Ozark? Because on the Lake of the Ozark, I want to know if it's gone up since Marty and know. Wendy Bird and and uh, have moved in, and everyone's looking for Ruth. You'd She's have to ask the Missouri too. Chamber of Commerce. But I did. There apparently there's a there's a there's a there's a, a lakeside bar there called Marty Bird's, I think, and they've got you know Darlene's lemonade, and they've got I don't know Jonah's buzzard sandwich, or I don't know. There's they're they've got some efforts down there. Mm-hmm. Um, Those such great characters. I yeah, mean, they're just the faces, the casting. Yeah, Alexa Fogel's been an incredible asset to this show, and and uh, she keeps putting, you know, very difficult choices in front of us. It's not just one clear. Oh, this is the person we need. Like she's just got an incredible taste and um, just stacks our, um, our our choices. So, but as far as what to expect this year, uh, again, there's the the. The obligation we have to to escalate the 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 dangers, the complexities, the challenges, both domestically and and business wise um, and criminally. Um, but we we don't want to just do that with well. There's more money to launder. There's we're kind of pushing out into some of some of the more complexities with the family. Um, uh, certainly between me and Wendy. Uh, we have a difference of opinion about what would be the path to keep us safest. 
Do we double down or do we just cut bait? And that's going to kind of collide a few times throughout the season. And sometimes we're on the right page, the same page. And sometimes we are being honest with one another. And other times there's some behind the scenes uh, attempted sabotage of, of certain agendas. And the writers, again, are just... Oh, such a great the, Yeah, they, they're... You know, there's a great combination of real ambitious creativity, but a very buttoned up and responsible checklist they go through to make sure that the choices that are made are vetted and the uh, the solves to these things are not um, cheap. Well, let's let's solve that one and move on to something else like it's it. Everything they do holds up to highbrow scrutiny, you know, and Marty and Wendy are really intelligent people. And so. They have to, they, the writers, have to weigh that against the decisions that are made. And um, so it makes it pretty narrow. Like, why don't they go to the police this episode or next episode? Mm-hmm. What What are the obstacles that the writers put in front of us that make that, um, you know, an impossible choice? That that's not a candidate. Um, that we have to continue going down a path that is entertaining and compelling and a little bit you know, unsettling. No, I think it's a huge part of the success of the show. Yeah. Is is the acting and the way you guys inhabit these characters and you live through them. I want to talk about Arrested Development Mm. and your SAG speech, which you didn't win for Arrested Development. You actually won for for Ozark. But you said something in that speech that kind of went viral, uh, certainly in the acting world, about not being in the room, you know, having not been in this room for a while mm. and that there was a bunch of years where you weren't weren't here yeah. and you didn't know if you were ever going to be here and about hanging in there right. for all those people at home, not in the room. Right. Talk to me about how important it was to become, to get cast actually in Arrested Development for you at that point in your career and kind of what, just a little bit about what those dark times were like and what it meant when you finally got to be Michael Bluth. Bluth. Being on TV and having success or being recognized or whatever those different flavors of junk food are kind of shaped my confidence. And when that stuff inevitably waned, um, as, you know, it always does in this business, you know, those ups and downs, I was not fully prepared for that. I mean, I, I got through it just fine. Um, but, you know, my coping skills were, I mean, I wasn't an adult, you know. I mean, that it kind of started to atrophy at about 20, something like that. So from 20 to 30, I didn't have the fuel that I had been using um, for identity. You know, I didn't have a job. I wasn't on TV. I wasn't... Um, so there was a, there was a a decade of, well, who am I and what do I do? And, and how can I possibly feel confident if I don't have this fuel that I was weaned on? Um, and I was old enough to realize that that's not good. That's not good enough. I need to create something that is self-sustaining, something that's not reliant on an outside force. And, you know, it's it's easier said than done. And it took some time and some therapy and, and this and that to, it probably wasn't helped by, you know, partying a lot because mm-hmm. that, you know, develops, you know, 
its own levels of self-doubt and paranoia and all that other crap. So it was, it was a difficult 10 years. Um, and then there was an audition for Arrested Development, you know, just one of the, you know, probably five or six auditions I'd have every month. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got that. And that show ended up being embraced by those who are in control of whether you're going to work again. In other words, it was a successful show with those with their finger on the button. It wasn't a populist successful show. It wasn't a show that was great, you know, really well received in the middle of the country, but was uncool to the coasts. Like it was cool on the coasts and wasn't really successful. So it was the kind of success I needed in order to get another job and another job after that. And so I was, thank God, old enough then to see, okay, you have another bucket of of relevance and access and capital. What are you going to do with it this time? And it wasn't lost on me what that moment was. And I was fortunate to get some further opportunities on the heels of that, of acting in jobs that were populated by the cool kids, even though my part may be four, five, six down the call sheet, you know, that was sort of, pardon the term, strategy. It was like, you know, take the small role in Starsky and Hutch as opposed to the leading role in a film that's just kind of junk, but my name's above the title and Mm -hmm. I get paid a lot of money. I just felt like that's kind of sprinter stuff. And I really was interested in, in staying employed for, you know, a long time. And so I felt like respect was the fuel of longevity as opposed to fame or fortune mm-hmm. or whatever. So uh, I got lucky that, that I got some of those jobs and they kind of rolled one into the other and into the other. And and so up on that stage, it was, here I am with what I think is uh, after a, a, an amount of time now behind me where perhaps, you know, nothing is ever for sure, but I felt like I had accrued a bit of a a reset foundation from which I can feel fairly confident that um, it's not so job to job to job now. Yeah. I mean, I could be, you know, out of the business in 12 months, who knows? We Mm -hmm. all could. Mm -hmm. Um, But it, it didn't, it didn't feel as tenuous in the last couple of years as it, as it has. And I continue to work as hard as I possibly can to honor the, fragility of of mm-hmm. of relevance and um continue to listen to all the things that I'm learning and reinvest into my career kind of emotionally and and with work ethic and um still going to therapy when I can yes and of course if you're like me and probably like most of your listeners that therapeutic voice is it's on there a lot and to the extent you listen to it, it can be pretty helpful. All right, let's talk about some of your comedic leading ladies because you've you've had a great, like you said, a great run. And I wrote down some of these movies just to try and remember yeah. them. It felt like there was that period of five years when it was you were just on such a streak. But obviously, I have to go to Jennifer Aniston. You mm-hmm. guys are amazing. Uh, you know, I think of her in Horrible Bosses. I think of you guys, even the office Christmas party. And what what is it about her that makes her such a good such a good co-star? 
Well, it's, uh, you know, like like any actor, male or female, that you have good chemistry with, um, the prerequisite is that they're good people. Jen is somebody that has put in an incredible amount of work listening to that voice that I was talking about. And she's somebody that is just, it is not difficult whatsoever to enjoy 100% of your time with her. And when you are working with that person, you're you're accessing that, you know, I mean, you're literally doing what we're doing right now. You're looking at them in the eye and you're reading cues and signals and that's chemistry. And if someone's an asshole, it's just not there. Yeah. And you're distracted with your inner thoughts of, oh, the scene could be so much better if they weren't so preoccupied with the fact that, you know, they had to sit around in their dressing room for the last three hours because we're late getting to their scene and they're moody or they're, I mean, and on and on and mm-hmm. on and on. There's so many different things that go into uh, making it challenging to have chemistry with somebody. So it's, it's, she's just a, a really great person and a, a really, really close friend. And um, you can do anything with a close friend and have a good time. Mm-hmm. Oh, I hope you guys do another movie together. Yeah, we'd love to. All right. So I'm asking everybody these questions. What are you eating? <laughs> I I'm obnoxiously Hollywood with what I eat. I mean, I'll, I'll I guess I would have to admit there is some vanity involved with it, but um, for the most part, what I love is a forty pound salad with chicken in it. Like I am <laughs> deeply addicted to that meal, mm-hmm. and so it's an easy thing to get. So I do have cravings, but only when they're paralyzing cravings do i do i go for it um and i and i do i'll i'll eat the biggest plate of garbage ever but it's only if i really really want it otherwise if i'm just hungry i'm eating just sort of staples that thankfully don't stick to my gut all right what's the last thing you binged on netflix um i'm a documentary fan so you know i love that you know Wild Wild Country and, uh, you know, Making a Murderer. And um, there's a lot that I need to get to. But uh, again, with my Dodger addiction and the dumpster fire on MSNBC that I'm addicted to, um, I'm, um, I just cannot get enough of watching this guy climb higher and higher up the clock tower. <laughs> um, just I'm on the sidewalk waiting for him to jump because uh, I want to see the splat. Yeah, yeah, and you know how to orchestrate it. Uh, all right, what are you reading? You know what? I don't read. My parents made a couple of mistakes. Um, uh, they, For the most part, they did great. But I, the one mistake when I was punished in an attempt to make it a productive grounding, there'd be no TV. You're going to read 60 pages of this book, and when we get home from work, you're going to tell us what was on those 60 pages. So I've always equated reading with punishment. And I'm not proud of the fact that I haven't been able to hit that reset button, but I just have this innate fear that I'm missing out on something outside, like my buddy's playing when I'm reading. So uh, I'm reading, obviously, all the time with uh, with work, but uh, but reading for pleasure, like a stack of books next to the bed, is something you will never, ever see in my house. And um, I wish that weren't the case, but... Um, Maybe someday, maybe when I'm retired and some sort of 
yummy. You're not retiring. No, but I mean, like, I I fantasize about that yummy book-lined, wood-paneled library and a pipe and 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 a fireplace. And a comfy chair, maybe then I'll go, yeah, now this is the time. All right, what are you listening to? Music-wise, I am um, uh, I am a, an enormous classical music fan. It's, uh, it, is, it is the soundtrack of every day of mine um, to the ridicule of everybody in my life. But I listen to um, any and all classical music in the car, in my house, in my dressing room, in my, it's just always on. Anytime I, I deviate from that, it is uh, Radiohead and Wilco. Thank you for coming on. It's great to talk to you. I could continue to talk to you. We can, so we'll do this weekly. Yeah, that'd be funny. You can come on guest host. It's always been my dream. Uh, just invite me. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I love Jason Bateman. He never disappoints. And I am going to hold him to it and make him come back and do another podcast. Ozark is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Present Company is produced by Netflix and Gimlet Creative. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.